Here we go. Franchises and Filmogs special episode. Chatting with Steven about Bong Joon-ho. Franchises and Filmogs, my friend Steven and me. Today is Black Friday, so get a big TV admissions free. Yeah! Hey everybody, just wanted to check in with you before this episode starts and let you guys know that today we have a super awesome episode. Uh, it's, I think, the longest episode I've ever had clocking in at about 55 minutes uh, when all is said and done. Uh, so it's a lot to listen to, but if you're stuck in line right now, uh, still trying to get that flat screen TV, here's, here's some fun stuff for you. I got to speak with one of my high school friends, Steven, who is an avid film watcher, uh, about Snowpiercer, which is Bong Joon-ho's 2013 film. And without further ado, I will bring that up, but I will let you know this episode will contain explicit language and spoilers for the 2013 Bong Joon-ho film, Snowpiercer. Welcome to a new episode of Franchises and Filmogs. Today, we are talking about Bong Joon-ho's fifth uh, feature film, not short film. We did not include his short films in this podcast because there are a lot of them and I didn't really have time to make a full podcast for all of them. But today we're talking about Snowpiercer, which is his 2013 thriller, horror, comedy, whatever you want to call it. He bends these genres a bunch. And we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the film we're going to talk about today. And today we have a special guest on the podcast as well. And that is my friend, Steven. He is a Kurosawa connoisseur. I'm totally making these up. I didn't ask him for permission to uh, give him these credentials, but I believe he's a Kurosawa connoisseur and a bold collector of Criterion Collection films. Anyways, how are you doing, Steven? I'm good. And, you know, I was a pretty apt nickname, I think. Does that work okay? Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of high-ranked Kurosawa movies. It, it, it looks a little biased. Yeah, I will admit right here and right now that I have still never seen a single Kurosawa film. So you're going to have to send me like a full list of the top ones. Maybe we'll do a full Kurosawa season uh, sometime around. But I definitely need to know the top ones. And I think there are a lot of Kurosawa films. So that season could be a really long season as well. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm down for that. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions to start off the podcast with you. Um, first of all, I, I might have just given it away, but what is your favorite director? Oh, my favorite director. That's a tough one. You know, it'd be, I do love the Kurosawa movies, but uh -huh. I'm probably just going to go more modern. And I feel like pound for pound, Quentin Tarantino's probably been my most consistent director, although I have a lot of criticism for the last one. The last one? No, oh. Once Upon a Time. Uh, you're, not, you're not a fan of Once Upon a Time? It is probably my least favorite Tarantino movie that I've seen. I haven't seen like the Grindhouse and whatever. Mm. But it, we, it's we might have Tarantino. to. We might have to bring you back on here when when we do Tarantino, just only for Once Upon a Time, though, because I I disagree with you on that a little bit. I think, but uh, 
I mean, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Uh, another question. Do you have a favorite franchise film? Or a franchise of films? Oh, God. Uh, That's a very vague question, so. Once again, maybe go with, like, the more consistent one. I can't even call it a franchise, like, Back to the Future. It's a trilogy. Well, no, I okay. mean, actually, no, let's go Lord of the Rings. What am I talking about? Okay, I was going to say, I have only seen the first Back to the Future film, so that's that's definitely something I'm going to have to check out uh, the rest of the films in. Uh, but I also agree with you, Lord of the Rings is a solid franchise. Do you have thoughts on, on the Hobbit films, though? Hobbits, uh, it, it, I think it lacks some of the passion. Like, parts of it are entertaining. I think someone <laughs> needed to be a harsher critic on the cutting room floor of the Hobbit. I'm not sure if I'm sure Peter Jackson at that point has a hundred percent control, but someone needed to be like, dude, <laughs> it's yeah. like 30 plus minutes here. That doesn't need to be there. Yeah. I think he was just kind of like, he knew that he could make the money off it and he just wanted to like experiment with his, his CGI maybe. Uh, but it was a little much for me. Um, all right. Now let's let's steer back toward the subject, I guess, of today's podcast. I'm really good at asking questions and then talking a long time about non-relevant things. So uh, you're welcome to do that on this podcast as well. Um, but do you have a favorite Bong Joon-ho film? Oh, yes, I do. It's going to be Memories of Murder. As the first one I ever watched for Bong Joon-ho, it was at a time I was like on a super Korean movie kick that like new wave of korean like thrillers and gritty dramas that were coming out around that well, not around that time but i was watching a lot of those memories of a murder like floored me and it's yeah. you know, like i love parasite it's like right up there but just maybe because i've had more time to sit on memories of murder it's still my favorite it's it's it'll and you mentioned like the genre blending it, yeah, yeah. Memories of Murder is so funny. And I didn't listen to your podcast on it, so I don't know your thoughts, but I was like when I watched it, I was so surprised by how funny it was and then just how serious it could it blended like this drama, the serious elements with that humor, especially like yeah. some of the scenes. Like there's like so there's like iconic scenes on that like the tunnel one in particular like mm -hmm. a beautiful shot of like the guy kneeling on the ground yeah antagonist with the gun i think that's on like the cover of some of the the like dvds and, and blu-rays too possibly um but yeah i agree that's definitely a top tier bong joon ho film and through i mean i'm up to his fifth film and the rest of the films i've seen and i i can't say a bad Bong Joon-ho film really um I think this one is very top tier as well Memories of Murder surprised me I actually thought it was quite a bit darker than most of his films there is definitely some comedy thrown in um but it it surprised me how much darker it was and then he threw in the host right after that which is a lot more comedy and then I just did Mother uh the other day and Mother, it felt like, was going back to, like, the memories of murder, uh, his his kind of tone with that. So that was super interesting to me. I've never seen Mother before, uh, but but really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, um, memories of a murder. I just think like the dynamic between the two cops is just so well written. Yeah. And yeah, it's definitely a, a study of like the the cops and their interactions too. Yeah, I like what the movie says. I like the focus on corruption. And it is one of those things like I it was my first movie I watched of him and it's my favorite. It's one of my favorite movies just of all time. And so like Parasite was great cuz it was kind of at that level again, but I do love like most of Bong Joon-ho's movie, but it did like I peaked like right away when I started watching yeah. this stuff. Yeah. And the other thing about Memories of Murder, we'll kind of leave it probably here and then move on to Snowpiercer. <laughs> um but but again I'm great at talking about something that's not necessarily this this part of the episode. Uh but Memories of Murder was only his like second film, which is astonishing to me that he went from barking dogs never bite to memories of murder. Um, but today let's, let's get into Snowpiercer. So this is a film that is very relevant to a class divide to politics. It also mixes the genres of Bong Joon-ho. I'll do like a little extremely short plot summary right here, just to catch the, the listener up to speed. I highly recommend that you watch this film if you have not seen it before and you're listening to this, uh, because we're definitely going to throw some spoilers in here. So uh, we're not afraid to spoil some of the best movies out there. Um, but this film is basically about this train that everyone is stuck on or not stuck on, I guess, but they are forced to live on because the climate has changed and they are in a frozen apocalypse, basically. And this train is their only means of survival and they are separated by class and the lowest class on the train is living in the back of the train and they have to make their way up to the front of the train to revolt. Yeah, that's that's basically the whole plot summary I have right now. And we'll get deeper into it here in a second. But uh, do you have any specifics that you want to add for that, Stephen? Ah, uh, no. I mean, you you about covered it. So it's a yeah, post-apocalyptic wasteland, class divide, revolt slash kind of prison break vibe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a pretty ruthless movie as well. There is a lot of blood and gore. This is not a, a movie to show to your five-year-old child, uh, unless you're that type of parent, but I, I, I'm I, not that type of parent, or I won't be that type of parent. I'm not a parent. Are you a parent? No, nope, not a parent. <laughs> you're, you're a dog parent. Um, but let's see. So I also want to go through some facts. So there are these protein bars that they eat on the train that are revolting. They look disgusting, Uh, but apparently they were made of seaweed tangle. I don't know what tangle is, uh, but they were also made with sugar and gelatin and Jamie Bell, which is one of the actors in the film hated them and Tilda Swinton liked them, which is extremely interesting to me because it sounds disgusting. And I don't know how anyone would really enjoy eating that. Um, do you know what Tangle is at all, Stephen? No, I don't. All right. uh, it just sounds like, I feel like directors love to give actors food they hate. Yeah. Ghost story, like, 
Rooney Mara. Was it Rooney Mara? <laughs> the that pie. Mara was forced, like, their first pie is, like, this disgusting vegetarian pie. And he's like, just eat the whole thing on camera right now. Five takes. It's like. <laughs> yeah, it's a very long take of just someone eating pie. Um, but, yeah, I guess it was very interesting to me that Tilda Swinton actually liked these protein bars, which I'm pretty sure Bong Joon-ho did not want anyone to like because they're supposed to be a disgusting food. Um, another interesting fact is Chris Evans is the, I, I'd say he's the lead actor in this film, oh, yeah. uh, but he plays this guy named Curtis who basically leads the revolt. And he is very big. He's a very big person and very strong and muscular. <laughs> I feel like, okay, I'm going to cut big that boy. part probably. He's a big boy. <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, let's get on track here again. He is a very muscular person <laughs> and, um, the costuming and the camera angles were used to make him look weaker because he could not look too strong in this film because he is eating these protein bars that in the film are made out of blended up cockroaches. Um, I think they did a, a pretty good job of making him not look too strong, but, there's only so much you can do with with costuming and camera angles. Did you did you notice that like at all? No, I mean he looked like I mean he doesn't look like a uh, Captain America Chris Evans, but yeah, that's true. He still looks um, like Chris Evans, and like they have him dressed in I think a pretty badass way is how you'd categorize it with his like coat and beanie and the beard it's like i don't know you don't really notice it like he still looks like pretty intimidating i think yeah he's like a stronger but like very dirty still like eating the cockroaches person that's i mean it, you can see why people look up to him as the leader i guess so they did, still did a good job of making him look like a leader but not like he could beat up everyone on the train, I guess. Yeah, like you could pick him out of a lineup. Like if you're on that train and just lined up 10 individuals, you could be like, that's that's the leader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John Hurt, who is also in this film, also a kind of elder leader figure, definitely could not lead this revolt at this point. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see, another fact, we've got Mason, which is the character played by Tilda Swinton, and uh, I believe this character is supposed to be a man still, but Mason was originally written for John C. Riley, which I find astonishing, and I'd love to see that version because uh, I didn't know that was a thing at all until I read that on IMDb. Um, but I think that Tilda Swinton is playing a man in this film, but I'm not. I'm not certain about that. I think at the beginning of the film, there's somebody that comes up to her and says, like, Mr. And that was the only reason I recalled that. Um, so I think that Bong Joon-ho also didn't want to rewrite the whole script for a, a female in that role. So he decided to keep basically the script that he had for John C. Riley. Um, but yeah, that's, that would be an interesting casting choice. Do you, do you have any thoughts on seeing John C. Riley in, in that role? You know, I mean, I haven't seen too much of John C. Riley outside of typical comedies. Like, what he's in, like, Chicago, right? That's, like, a different role for him. He could probably do it. But, I mean, like, oh. I don't know. I thought Tilda Swinton was 
just Tilda Swinton. I mean, she's like the queen of just being a friggin' weirdo on screen. So yeah, people praised her for this role. Um, I didn't know John C. Riley was in Chicago. I actually have not seen the Chicago movie, so that's interesting. But yeah, yeah people in reviews definitely praised Tilda Swinton for this role. Yeah, I mean, she kills it. She's just she's good at being crazy and quirky and all the yeah, bad she's, ways. She scared me, definitely. <laughs> and I think she's in Okja, right? I haven't seen Okja in a really long time. Yeah, I haven't seen uh, that one, but she is in it, yeah. Oh, okay. You haven't seen it at all? Nope. Ah, all right. Well, I'll come back and reconvene with you on my thoughts on that. Um, this film, Snowpiercer, was also filmed in 72 days. And another thing I didn't know is it's apparently based on a French graphic novel that I'm going to try and pronounce right now. And I'm going to mispronounce it, but you're going to have to listen to me pronounce it. Uh it is Le Transpersonage. Yeah, that's how good I am at French. Uh, and then the last fact I have is the character Gilliam, which is played by John Hurt, was named after Terry Gilliam. And then the character Edgar, who is played by Jamie Bell, was named after Edgar Wright. So those are a couple of interesting tidbits for you as well. You know, the Gilliam one makes a lot of sense. And I even have it. looks like Terry Gilliam kind of in the film too. I even have it in my notes about specifically the world building in this film reminds me of what Gilliam did with Brazil. And I wrote down Brazil. So I mean, I kind of think there's like the influence there confirmed. I didn't even really make that connection, but that is really interesting to me now. Um, I just watched Brazil like less than a year ago, I think, for the first time ever. And that is a wild movie um, that I still don't fully understand. And I think there's like five different endings that you could see for it. So that was interesting to me. Um, Let's see. Let's take a quick break right here. And we will be right back. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to all my listeners out there. You guys are awesome. And I wanted to let you know that one way you can support this podcast is through Anchor uh, for donating as little as 99 cents a month and 50% of all proceeds for this episode and moving on until January 1st of 2021 will be going to the National Film Festival of Talented Youth, uh, which is a a pretty cool Seattle-based organization for talented youth filmmakers. And welcome back to Franchises and Filmogs, where I am talking with my friend Steven about the 2013 Bong Joon-ho film Snowpiercer. Uh, So we kind of went over some facts in the plot, and I do have some burning questions from this film uh, about the not so distant future, I guess. I mean, I don't think our future is headed this way in 10 years. This film takes place in 2031 and I don't see a frozen apocalypse that soon, but it, I guess it's possible. Uh, what, what do you think could happen in, in 10 years from now? Do you think there's going to be one train of humans left? 
Uh, you know what? No. Uh, I'm not a scientist, but... Uh... Oh, yeah, I should have prefaced that as well. I'm also not a scientist. This very well could happen or could not happen. I mean, you know, stuff is bad. But, you know, I feel like our train technology isn't going to keep up with probably uh, the badness of what climate change is doing. we got to up our train game before we yeah, can actually, talk about putting everybody on a train. I do want to talk about the train actually right now since you brought that up because this train seems extremely unrealistic to me this like might be the only flaw now this film is near flawless it is fictional so i'm not going to like butcher it too much but this train made very little sense to me because i don't know how one train could run when there's only snow outside i don't know how you can make a train this strong either um i'd love to know what this train was made of uh, so I found that kind of flawed. I think, like, doesn't it run on water or other stuff like that? Doesn't it, like, take in the environment as it goes? Yeah, I think it, yeah, they said it takes in, I guess, water from the front. And then I guess that somehow powers all of it. So I guess that's possible. I mean, the but guy's I'm still like, kind of like. The guy's oh, like the Tony Stark of trains. It's like. Obviously, in, like, you know, Marvel, Tony Stark makes a lot of, like, bullshit things that <laughs> yeah. are far from reality. This dude is, like, there's that but trains, so. Yeah, yeah, this this Wilford guy really knew what he was doing. Uh, the guy who, I think, made the train, or at least runs the train, I don't even know uh, what his role is exactly, but Ed Harris plays that guy, and Ed Harris is a great villain almost all the time i don't know have you watched westworld at all i have yeah ed harris is like a classic villain yeah this feels very much like a westworld role to me which is interesting um but yeah the train also i didn't understand how many people were on this train because they get to the front in not way too long of time like i think it's the course of two or three days um but supposedly all the humans left are on this train. And I can't imagine that there are that many humans on this train based on the only like five or six cars we really see. Um, did you have any gauge of, of a population on this train? No, they talk about numbers a lot. I mean, that's like a big focus for uh, Mr. Wilford, the benevolent and, I don't I don't remember any of the numbers they had counting and stuff. Maybe that's something I think they they could have mentioned and gone more into like this science science of keeping the population under control. Yeah. But I don't know. I was just vaguely under the impression that it was like, I don't know, maybe like three thousand. I don't know. It's hard to even picture what that many people is or are. So. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you don't want to like bog it down with science either i mean i guess it's it's not a true story i hope that we're gonna see anytime soon uh but uh i guess you definitely don't want to bog it down and this movie like it flies by it's a very fast-paced movie um it did it felt like bong joon ho's shortest film to me uh it's not i don't i'm pretty sure it's not but it flies by and it's a pretty minimal plot too like it's just like a class divide of like poor people trying to get 
to the front where the rich people are and trying to take over this train. And that's like pretty much the simplistic or the, uh, the most simple way to, to state this story. I also thought that this train would be a major cause for disease, which, I mean, this was definitely, this was definitely made before COVID-19, but there were diseases back then still. Um, And I think that the poor cart would definitely be uh, a place where disease would very easily spread because everyone's contained in this closed system. So that's another thing that I'm more curious about. Maybe this is why the TV show was made. I haven't watched the TV show at all uh, that came out. I think it's maybe on TNT uh, for this film. So I might need to watch that. Yeah, the movie gets passed because it takes place in, you know, like you said, like maybe two days. And if they had more time to like explore life on the train, I think you would want to have stuff like disease. And I hope the tv show would do that it would be more like a you know like the early seasons of walking dead kind of thing like focusing on surviving disease all that kind of stuff yeah yeah so i think it is interesting that they made a whole tv show about it so i might need to check that out i also think um david diggs is in that and i love david diggs so i might watch it because of that as well uh so yeah um, something that Bong Joon-ho does great in all of his films, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, is he tends to blend these genres. And I'm going to list kind of the genres that I saw most prevalent in this film. And then if you have any to add, Stephen, feel free. Uh, but there's definitely action. There's thriller. There's It almost feels like a heist film at times. There's horror, which I think I've seen in all of his films so far, and comedy. Um, do you have any others to add or that you want to talk about specifically with this film? No, I think like what I get from it is mostly like, I mean, you could, I guess, add sci-fi in there if you want to get. Oh yeah, definitely sci-fi. So yeah, it's like, it's yeah. like action thriller sci-fi with comedy elements is generally the vibe I get from it and how I categorize it. Oh, it's not a great categorization if you have five things. Yeah. Um, I definitely think comedy is one of Bong Joon-ho's strong suits. And I still don't know how he makes this kind of comedy because it's just like awkward, dark comedy. It's kind of like Tarantino. Tarantino does this too. Uh, but it's mostly character based. I think a lot of the time, like Tilda, Tilda Swinton in this film just seems like comic relief most of the time, but it's not something I should be laughing at because her character is definitely something that we could see in this world. Um, I, yeah, I, I definitely like this film and I like his blend of genres. Uh, majority of this film, definitely action as well. And I think this is the most fighting I've seen in a Bong Joon-ho film. And it is shot fantastically um, and beautifully. There's one scene I definitely wanted to talk about uh, with you as well, Stephen. Um, but there are these axe dudes in this one train. If you, you recall that scene yep. and that scene is ridiculous because I think he goes through like five different lightings in the course of 10 minutes where there's like complete darkness. There's complete light. There's fire. 
there's slow-mo, there's night vision. Uh, what what did you think about that scene? Because that's probably my favorite scene in, in the whole film. Yeah, I'd probably agree. <clears throat> that second battle is fucking rad. Because, I mean, the it's kind of with the whole world building like the movie's very mad max it's very like water world and so he just kind of reinforces that when they like open the gate and you got the people covering their faces and the black mass just holding axes it also kind of reminded me of like the axe gang from kung fu hustle which gave me a, a slight chuckle despite it being a more serious scene and i just i do appreciate the use of lights i think incorporating those elements into fight scenes makes fight scenes so much more interesting when you have some uncontrollable factor that your protagonists have to deal with especially when it's to their detriment as much as it is in this one yeah i did find it interesting they open that scene with these dudes that are like carrying axes and they're just standing in a mob and they are wearing these like face masks that lead me to believe that they cannot see Um, because they are covering their eyes, which was interesting to me at first because then they put on like night vision and then they're trying to see through two things. So that confused me a little bit, but it definitely had an aesthetic to it. Um, Yeah. I think it was more aesthetically strong rather than uh, practical for sure. Yeah, this was like, uh, it, it feels like a scene from, from the raid Yeah, as well. It's definitely gritty like that. And I do appreciate, I was just, my second time, or maybe my third time around watching it, this last time, I was paying attention to kind of like the background and foreground choreography during that scene. And I thought it was really good too, because you can see just scenes like, I know I think it's a classic one to point out is like Christopher Nolan, like the Dark Knight, uh, rises like the background choreography in that movie yeah ass in this one it's good like the people are actually fighting in the background there's like people dying that you can recognize from earlier scenes yeah this is i mean it's got a star-studded cast too um so you kind of can recognize people all the time and i don't know how much these actors got paid to be in almost every scene but There's also, like, talking about cinematography, there are a few outside shots that are really, really damn good. Um, I don't know how much budget was spent on this film. That's probably something I should have researched. And I don't know how they made those outside shots, like, if it's mostly a green screen or or what. Uh, But I really enjoyed the snow-covered landscape, along with all the inside shots. Um, there's also like shots that are straight down a hallway, uh, because you have to feel like you're on a train so you can see like everything in front of you or behind you until there's a gate closed, of course. But I thought that was really well done. Uh, did you like the outside scenery as well? I guess. Yeah, I like the, I guess the symbolism it played or just the foreshadowing it played to the end and kind of like with the outside shot kind of going back to that battle scene the i thought the the new year pause in the battle was really funny i thought that was a really oh nice, yeah that was a good like mix that's a good example of him mixing humor into an otherwise like 
very serious situation. Yeah, that was definitely the Bong Joon-ho touch uh, of comedy that's like very out there. And I feel like it takes a certain sense of humor to be like, I really like this movie because I think like my parents might watch this movie and be like, I don't I don't understand why. Why do people enjoy this bloody, gory film? Uh, But those subtle hints, it shows how interested he is in making these films. I think it's easy to overlook how many different acts are in this just one scene. It's more like an actual, you know, like war movie, like saving Private Ryan scene, because you have like the initial confrontation. You have the the new year pause for humor. You have like the lights going out, the switch in the battle, and then like the follow up with like the communication down the train to get the light back. It's like a three act, you know, full scene. Yeah. They do like this Olympic torch run to get the fire to the train too, which is great. I love that. Uh, I love the slow-mo in in that shot. I love his Um, use of the linear setting. I think it's a really interesting concept to have a movie that is basically like completely linear, you know, like you have the beginning and it's a straight line and you can do interesting things with that. And we can get into it a little later, but there's like a shot just at the beginning I would bring up in terms of that. And then like, it's back with, you know, the torch running scene and just making use of the environment he's put in. He does a good job. Yeah, definitely. I think let's actually, um, let's take a little break here and then we'll, we'll talk about kind of class divide. Cause I think that kind of goes in with that, the like setting of this film definitely relates to the class divide. Uh, So we'll take a break right here and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the main message of this film, I guess. And we're going to get to our overall thoughts and kind of ranking of this film. Uh, but I wanted to start off this this last portion of the podcast talking about class divide, because this is another thing that Bong Joon-ho does in, I'm pretty sure, every film. I think every film I've seen so far, so the only two left are Okja and parasite but i think there's definitely class divide in parasite uh i don't remember okja that well so i'll have to get back to that um but in this film there's a very distinct order on this train of rich people in the front poor people in the back and there's a very um a very meticulous way that they talk about this order uh tilda swinton's character mason says all things flow from the sacred engine so the sacred engine is at the front which i don't know trains very well so i don't know if the engines i guess it's always at the front yeah Yeah. um but i found that very interesting and i don't really know how they set up this order in getting on the train but uh do you have some some thoughts about the the class divide on this train Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty, all things considered, like, standard class divide kind of story. And with 
kind of the themes of the movie. I do think Parasite is him returning to these themes, but much more refined in what he had to say and what he wanted to say. Just because this movie, there aren't, on the other side of the class, there aren't any redeeming people, you know? It's very black and white where, like, you know, the tail section people are great. You know, we love them. They're the people we root for. And none of the front section people are they don't really give them any meat to work with in the script other than like you should loathe these people yeah actually that's definitely a a critique that i could have about this film is we don't see much of the upper class people at all uh we only really see like tilda swinton we see wilford at the end we see allison pill's character she plays like a teacher that teaches rich kids i guess i don't know how the kids really end up in that class but (laughs) i guess they're rich kids so i would love to have seen more of the upper class i guess there's also like drugs in this film which is interesting they use this like fuel i guess to get high chronal yeah chronal and we get to see uh kang ho song again which is a frequent collaborator with bong joon ho and i've said this in previous podcasts i don't know if you know anything about this but his name is listed differently everywhere i look him up so i think (laughs) he goes by kang ho song but it might be song kang ho um i don't know i I think it's just uh i don't know what what is just the preferred way in korea it's yeah i do um think in this film i don't know if i would have recognized him actually as much because in all of his previous films and in parasite he looks familiar to me and i could recognize him but i didn't remember him from this film and re-watching it he looks very different to me than in any other bong joon ho film uh but i love him as an actor He's and awesome. love seeing him in bong joon ho films i have not I mean, I don't know if I've seen him in any other uh, Korean films, but I'm sure he's in a lot of them. And I will be looking for that. (laughs) Uh, His daughter in this film also plays his daughter in The Host. So that was also interesting. Oh, yeah, she does. She looks also very different in this film, but I think she also like got taller over the time uh, because she was pretty young in The Host. Yeah, that's so they get high off this drug Kronos. Chronal. I keep saying Chronos, which I think is something else, but Chronal. Um, and yeah, so that kind of shows like there's there's drugs in the lower class that's circulating around, circulating around. Wow, I am losing my words here. Um, another big thing in this film was child labor, which we see at the end. Yep. At the end of the film, Chris Evans, uh, who plays Curtis. And Kang Ho Song, who plays Nam Goong, if I said that correctly. And that might be it. Oh, I think Yona, his daughter as well, who played who is played by Asun Ko. Uh, they all make it to the front. And Nam Goong and his daughter try to escape the train by blowing up the door with the chronal. And Curtis goes to confront Wilford, the great Ed Harris, about the class divide, I guess. 
and why they have to stay in the back of the train. Now, I'm not sure what the real end game of Curtis's adventure was. I guess it was to create a balance in the train. But I think they killed like three quarters of the train already. So I think it's one of those like uh, the person doing the revolt kind of thinks, you know, they can run things better kind of thing. It's like that uh, from their perspective, like a lot of things could be done differently. And if they were the leader, they would do all these things. And that might be honestly why he breaks the chain of uh, the class divide and like the circle of uh, keeping the population in check. Cause maybe he realized, you know, if he took control, he wouldn't be able to do all the things he wants for his people. And he would, he, there's a chance he could have ended up like Wilfred. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess the kind of the last thing I wanted to talk about was also the very end of this film where the train does derail and like 90% of the people die, but I think four people are left. Um, But we see this polar bear and there was this whole question of whether things in nature were coming back to life or if things were dying and they had to stay on this train. So I believe the end message is that nature is coming back to life and it is a hopeful message that climate change might not force us all to be on a train with a giant class divide. Um, did you have anything you want to add to the, to the end of this film? I think you also, did you want to talk about the beginning of the film a little bit as well? Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll follow that up with after the end. It's like, yeah, I do think the, uh, end is a more hopeful message. I do think it was kind of about just breaking free from the set system. I think it was more thematic than literal in that sense. Yeah. I know like yeah. the ending of this movie did get a lot of flack, at least like places I read and saw just because there's a lot of people that go like, oh, it's just cool kids in like the arctic and there's a polar bear they're gonna die right away what a stupid ending and i was like that's what i think it's like it's not as literal i i think it's yeah it's the idea that they broke out of the system and i mean to be fair it's like maybe it's not that cold and maybe like i have a feeling like some other people survive the train derailing there's gotta be at least a few yeah other than two little children <laughs> one thing and yeah, <laughs> Did their parents survive too? There was. I think did Kang Ho Song survive? No, I think it was just no? Yona and uh, Yona and Octavia Spencer's. I think Timmy yeah, seems like Timmy. Timmy, because I think there is a scene after the crash that Yona does go to where Curtis and Nam Goong are, and she kind of cries a little bit, and, and I know she says like his name, and she's like Curtis, and so I think they're, yeah. they're dead. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think the ending definitely gives me hope that that I won't be stuck on a train in the middle of <laughs> the Arctic for the rest of my life in 10 years from now. Um, but yeah, I think we can uh, start to wrap up here. I want definitely want to know your overall thoughts of the film. 
Yeah, I enjoy the film a lot. I think it's... I enjoy it more, I think, for the action, the set pieces, the world building, than maybe, like, the themes. I do think, like, Parasite is the one to watch if you want to, like, really get into, like, the deep themes and characters. But it's just... It's a supremely entertaining movie. I definitely would put it... I'd put it above Mother and the Host but below kind of the the top, the cream of the crop memories of Birder and Parasite. Some okay. Other things I, I kind of like, and I mentioned like before, just like the linear structure, I just think is pretty fascinating and cool. Mm-hmm. And like the opening scene of the movie, I think is such a great establishing shot for your protagonist because you have them doing the head count and like everybody, and and it's once again you get that linear shot of everybody down the train and everybody sitting down, but Chris Evans, and he looks freaking cool the way he's just standing there, like determined and staring. And then it cuts to where he's looking at, and you see like you kind of figure out that he's you know thinking about the escape, and you get like the linear shot of all the doors closing, and yeah, he plays that stuff well. And I do like I'm a big sucker for like prison break type stuff so when they first break out of the tail section i think is awesome especially just how they planned it and then just like when like him approaching the man with the gun like pulling the trigger you got jamie bell yelling like there's no bullets and then like push the thing through the door i think it's pretty awesome that that no bullet scene also one of my favorites because when you learn your enemy has no bullets that's that's when shit gets real and jamie um, bell needs to be in more things i really like jamie bell he's a what good else actor. is he in that you could tell me because i have seen he, very few movies well, he's in the adventures of tintin so like that's voice acting but i think he does a really good job i i really like the spielberg adventures of tintin and then he's in jumper that. that's not a good movie but he's probably like the redeeming quality of it mm-hmm I think I saw that like once in high school on TV on like TNT or something. So I might need to rewatch Jumper one day. It looks like um, Fantastic Four kind of derailed his career though, looking out the IMDb, which makes me sad because I really, I really enjoy him. He's like probably my favorite of the supporting cast. Was he in the new one or the old one? He was in the one with, uh, was yeah michael b jordan and miles teller the movie Kate that Marla. tried to derail like three great young careers <laughs> yeah yeah i think kate Mar- mara also just like said that movie like tried to derail her career <laughs> yeah so that's interesting uh i guess uh getting back to snowpiercer a little bit um i also think this is one of the best bong joon ho films um, I actually rank it as my second favorite film mm-hmm. that I've seen by him uh, under Parasite. Now, I haven't seen Parasite in a few months, but since it's so new, I definitely remember it. And I've seen it like three or four times. Um, so I think it's going to remain at the top unless Okja pulls one of the weirdest surprises because I don't recall liking that film too much. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely would rank this very much toward the top of Bong Joon-ho uh it is very simple there is a pretty simple message with a lot of underlying 
details, I guess, that you can really talk about after watching the film. And some really good acting. Chris Evans is great. It's I, I'd compare this to like him in Knives Out. Um, I think he's closer to that than the buff Captain America, although he's still buff in this film. He's yeah. buff in every film. He has a great <laughs> monologue, too. Like, it's a, it's a pretty good monologue at the end to Namgoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, John Hurt. We didn't talk about him too much, but I think he's fantastic in this film. Ed Harris, again, always a solid villain. Tilda Swinton scares me, and she can play whoever she wants. It's like a who's uh, who of character ask actors, honestly. Like, Tilda, John, Ed Harris are all, like, great character actors. Yeah, and I love... Again, I love that Bong Joon-ho was able to bring Kang Ho Song aboard this film as well, so that he was introduced to to more of an audience, I'm sure, from this film. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything I have to say. Is there anything else you want to add before we we cut it? Yeah, I have some criticisms, I guess, for the movie. If we want to add a little bit of Oh, I'd, I'd love to hear criticisms. Give me those negatives. And some... So, I mean, some of the, like, things that I wrote down is I do find it's an overabundance of quirky characters. And I do think, okay. I do think like, maybe this, like, you might disagree. I do think Snowpiercer plays it more straight than his other movies I've seen in terms of humor. And it might just be because I think more, most of the humor from Snowpiercer comes from just the characters being wacky rather than the things like the situations they're in i guess and i do i just it is like tilda swinton is like she's enough quirky for like a whole movie and there's a lot of like you got like allison pill like brainwashing people you got like it's definitely a a trope was definitely like the two silent fighter guys that were antagonists i feel like that's a pretty common trope is to have the competent mute fighter that is just a psycho. Yeah. And I guess some quit. Like, I think my biggest criticism though, is I think the notes that get passed to Curtis are the worst part of the movie for me. Oh, I actually didn't fully understand that. I thought it was like a little bit of a silly twist that is, uh, you know, it's like Ed Harris has been sending these his the notes to him the whole time, and a lot of times yeah. the notes were pointless. Like the note that came in right before Allison Pill gunned down the one armed man, it because like the note just said blood, and then she started shooting, and or like it said bullets. I don't know, and it's it just it was like pointless. It to me it doesn't add anything. It just made the story a little convoluted when you try to follow the notes. Especially since, like, the notes arrive so late that it's, like, they really don't matter. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really, to be honest, like, I didn't pay attention to the notes, really. um, At least this time around. So, like, when we got to the end and he, like, pulled out the note, I was like, I mean, I don't really know what that has to do with anything at this point. Um, So, yeah, I definitely would agree with that, that criticism on the film. Because yeah. it feels like Bong Joon-ho might be trying to get a message in there, but it's not the most clear what, what he's going for. Maybe it was in the graphic novel, too. He's trying to incorporate it. I just, I don't yeah. I don't think it worked for 
the movie. Yeah, I'll definitely need to look into the graphic novel now that I know it's a graphic novel. But if it's in French, it's probably not going to be <laughs> something I can read. Uh, there's probably a translated version, though. Um, yeah, overall, I want to do ratings. I'd give it a uh, 4 out of 5. Solid 4 out of 5 for me. Okay. Yeah, I'm giving this one a 4.5 out of 5, mm. actually. Which, it's it's astonishing to me because... I don't think I've seen this since it came out and I didn't love it the when I saw it and it came out originally. So it, there was a big turnaround with this film for me. Um, yeah. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything that you want to plug at all or support at all? You're welcome to, if you don't have anything, uh, you can just say that you love my podcast really loudly so everyone can hear it. No, but uh, but yeah, if you want to say anything that you have to plug, feel free. No, I mean, I just, I work a normal job, so I don't have uh, any media-related ventures. Uh, I just yeah. like movies. I love movies, uh, especially, I guess you can't really say he's a smaller director anymore after he was first international Oscar winner. But, uh, you know, just watch watch smaller movies, folks. Support smaller movies go to less uh big blockbusters <laughs> yeah definitely no i support that uh unfortunately i think i started this series uh too late because bong joon ho has won oscars but he also should have won those oscars many years ago um i agree definitely watch smaller uh i guess smaller directors less uh less rich directors. I don't know. Um, but yeah, support, support the arts. That's a great message. Uh, and with that, I would like to just say thanks for joining me, uh, to talk about Snowpiercer today. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Yeah. And you're always welcome back. Um, and with that, we will cut it here and I will talk to you all next week on Tuesday when we will be talking about Okja. Thanks again to Stephen for coming on the show and all of you listeners that are supporting the show. I just wanted to let you guys know that you are all welcome to be a part of the show. If you are interested in co-hosting any episodes with me, uh, feel free to reach out. I have a pretty open schedule for recording, so just let me know. Um, and the way you can do that is through any of my social medias. You can do it through email just to reach out to me. And all of that is in the description. And just wanted to throw it out there one more time that 50% of all proceeds for this podcast are going to local arts organizations, film festivals, and local concert venues in the greater Seattle area.